0: Challenge, leave things better. This is Webademic, a semi-regular broadcast about the way the web is changing our lives, why we should care, and how we can act together for good. This is Episode 7 with your hosts, Mike Wickett and Jeff Sage. So, welcome back,
1: Mike Wickett. Thanks a lot, Jeff Sage. It's, uh, It's good to be back.
0: It's really hard to do a show flying solo. I'm glad you're back.
1: Well, I got to say, I thought you did a pretty good job, uh, especially talking to some super duper academics.
0: I'm I'm so glad you're back on a number of levels. One, because our next guest, I surely, certainly, without a doubt, could not handle on my own. Uh Uh-oh. If our next guest's awesomeness factor, based on his contributions to the study of the internet, was translated literally into a musical score, it would sound something like this.
1: Lee Rainey is the director of the Pew Research Center's Internet and American Life Project, a nonprofit, nonpartisan fact tank that studies the social impact of the Internet. The project has issued more than 300 reports based on its surveys that examine people's online activities and the Internet's role in their lives. Lee co authored Networked, the social operating system, with sociologist
0: Barry Wellman and co authored a series of books about the future of the Internet. Prior to launching the Internet and American Life Project for Pew, Lee was Managing Editor of U.S. News World Report. He is a graduate of Harvard University and has a Master's Degree in Political Science from Long Island University. Lee Rainey, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks, Jeff, for having me.
1: Uh, Lee, so you were responsible for launching the Internet in American Life Project. Tell us about this amazing initiative, uh, You know how it got started, and specifically why you thought it was important to start it.
2: Well, I actually, I can't take credit for the idea. It was hatched by the staff of my wonderful patron, the Pew Charitable Trusts, who began to think in the late 1990s that the Internet was going to be a big technology in people's lives and that there ought to be some universally accepted data about its adoption and its use. And there were, really weren't that many institutions, not any public ones anyway, that were looking at those very questions. Who was using the internet? What were they doing and what were they getting out of it? So they came to me and said, would you you like to run something like this? And I was smart enough to say, of course I would. Uh, And so I wrote a grant proposal that talked about how we were going to study the social impact of the Internet. We don't really focus very much on commercial applications, although lots of commercial stuff is implicated in our work. But we look at the impact of the Internet on families and communities and healthcare, and education and politics and workplaces. So we were carving out a unique role in the world, and and I've been lucky enough to get funding from the Pew Charitable Trusts, a big American foundation, for 12 years now, and we've been doing big national surveys that look at the role of the internet in people's lives, and increasingly, we've added questions about mobile connectivity and about social media, social networks in particular.
0: Wow. So let me get this straight. For us to get this in Canada, we need a really rich person and a really smart person like you, and then we can have Pew in Canada. You know
2: what? I only know data. I'm not. I can't even claim to be that smart. But in in the world where uh, not too many people have the kind of data we have, people mistake me for being smart, and uh, that's fine by me. And it's it's a it's a it's a unique um, value proposition because um, in the bio that you read about me, you noted that we call ourselves a fact tank. The Pew Charitable Trust does a lot of advocacy work. It wants to make the world a better place in terms of the environment and healthcare and education and all sorts of things. But our mission is different from that. Their their funding for us is contingent on the fact that we don't have an agenda driving our work. There's no Pew master plan for fixing the internet. There's no official Pew position on net neutrality. We didn't file comments on the Comcast NBC merger. We don't have an agenda driving our work. We are strictly about the business of doing primary research and about understanding the role of the Internet in people's lives and then putting out our data and putting out our reports all for free and having encouraging people to take a look and to make of the data what they want and to interpret the data in the way that matters most to them so it's a it's a wonderful model, particularly for a lapsed journalist like me and Since I have no detectable belief system it 's a great way to make <laughs> sure that um, no advocacy creeps into the work
0: it's It's an amazing project let's 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 start to dig in a little bit so as a marketer it's been exponentially helpful in in my work to have statistically relevant data about internet ba- based trends and because there's just there's a lot of garbage out there and that's just the nature of the internet but let's sort of begin on a on a macro level given you work with this type of data every day and for a number of years now what's out there right now that's blowing your mind what what data sets are remarkable enough to make Lee Rainey sit up and say Wow
2: I've worked so often with data that there aren't that many "Wow moments or surprise moments in my life, uh, but i'm I'm particularly fascinated by the expansion of what Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook calls the social graph the way in which people, through their own social network posts, but also just through their traveling in apps or on the web, are sharing the stuff that they're reading, the stuff that they're watching, the stuff that they're observing, and the way that this is being integrated into so many people's lives. There is enormous policy energy here in Washington, and I'm sure in Ottawa as well, and in in, in your provincial governments, about the implications of all of this on privacy. So we're, we're... paying attention to the way that people feel about what they're sharing and how it can be um, misinterpreted or how the government ought to take a role in, in protecting them if, if they, their material is, is captured by the wrong people in the wrong way. So there's lots of stuff related to the social graph that is, has a lot of energy now. We're also beginning to think about big data. Uh, there are lots of other data sets. We, we gather our data as big national surveys, so we talk to people on the telephone and we ask them questions about their internet use and that's a wonderful way to get uh, a lot of good stories about technology adoption. But there are other data now that are being collected by technology companies, by corporations, by governments and other analytics and it'll be interesting to watch how those data are interpreted and how they are used particularly in the business and, and public policy arena. So, we're paying attention to the, the, the rise of big data. And of course, a lot of people are interested in what's around the corner with technology. So, mm-hmm. we're, we're sort of poised to capture. Uh, The new interfaces that people are going to be using, obviously, right now, people are talking to their smartphones and getting answers. They don't need to type in anything. They're swiping and getting answers. Uh, There are ways now that people are using services like Microsoft Connect, and they're just gesturing and getting data to, to do the dance that they wanted to do. So there are new ways now that people are going to be interacting with data, gathering up materials, sharing with their social networks, and we're really interested in how that kind of stuff unfolds, too.
0: You um Just a sub-question on that, I think you gave a keynote about a year ago, just when we were researching for the show, and you said uh, something to the effect that you have in the past over-predicted the sensitivity of how much people would be upset about large organizations gathering their data or collecting their personal data. Is Is that still true today?
2: In the work that we've done on privacy, stretching back to the year 2000, we've seen a very clear sort of paradox in the way that that people think about privacy americans in particular they will say that as a value as a political moral aspect of life they really really value privacy they want to be in control of their identity they want to know who's capturing stuff about them they want to intervene to make sure that people under have the right understanding of who they are and what they're doing and it's a very precious to Americans. And yet on the other side of their behavior they act in ways that are not terribly discriminating about what they share and how they share it and and how they march through life. Part of that is they don't necessarily know what's being collected about them. You know, as they browse, they don't necessarily know what cookies are on their browser and they don't necessarily know what companies are are capturing about them. But in many cases they are making pretty interesting calculations about uh, the value of getting access to a product or a service and giving up some personal information in return for that. So if, if convenience is at issue, if, uh, if their desire to get to information is greater than their desire to protect their identity, there are lots of ways in which Americans uh, sort of shed what others have called data exhaust. And they're not too concerned about how it's going to be used. Not many Americans have actually said, I've I've been hurt by what I've disclosed. I've been hurt by the misunderstanding that a company or a government has formed about me based on its profiling of me. But they're nervous about it. So it's, there's this paradox. There. They consider it a high value. They act in ways where they don't necessarily care about that value at, at the practical level in their day-to-day lives. And these things are intention. tension. And, and, and there are lots of ways now that policymakers are trying to sort out how to deal with those paradoxes.
1: So it, it seems like uh, you know, people are, are finding that, that positive value in their life by sharing the data – Um, But it seems like based on what we've read, uh, a lot of the data your team sees supports a generally positive view of our always connected society. But at the same time, there are many uh, who demonize our digital shift, uh, like the self-proclaimed antichrist of Silicon Valley, Andrew Keene, who argues that the social web is weakening, disorienting and dividing us rather than establishing the dawn of a new egalitarian and communal, communal age. So how do you use your data to respond to those kind of criticisms?
2: Well, we just ask people questions about the role of technology in their lives. And by and large, when you ask them to tote up the pluses and the minuses, and they will talk about the minuses, they say it's a net positive as a rule. They, they like being connected to their friends in new ways. They like finding friends in new ways. They like being able to join and remove themselves from communities it, with a little bit more rapidity than they did in the past. They like that they're, they have access to information from new sources and new ways that uh, they couldn't have had access in the pre-internet era. So their their sort of positive views about that sort of permeate our data. The other thing that we've done, of course is 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 to look at correlations and we've seen pretty strong evidence that, for instance, uh, the people who uh, have Facebook profiles are more trusting than others. They have more friends than others. They are more likely to participate in politics than others. They're more likely to engage in public spaces. So the concern that people are using the internet to retreat from real life uh, doesn't play out in our data. And in in interesting ways, people who are using social networking sites and their cell phones are getting more information from more diverse sources and they're actually sort of expanding the diversity of their networks rather than contracting it into these echo chambers that people worry about. Which isn't to say, though, that people aren't concerned. They do talk uh, in, in interesting ways about their struggle with time management. There are now ways that they are expected to be on the grid and expected to be available that sometimes feel oppressive to people. There are ways that they struggle to get access to the right information. You know, they ha- they're sorting through a lot more material now and are not confident that they are finding the best, most appropriate stuff for themselves. They're certainly worried about their neighbors and others in their family. So that, in some sense, they're saying, uh, my use of it feels okay to me. But all those other people are, are kind of acting crazy. They're, they're living in echo chambers. They are uh, relying on low-quality information. They're making wrong decisions. They're hurting themselves in measurable ways. And so this, this isn't a uniformly positive story. And sort of one of the things that we try to do in the book that you mentioned at the beginning is to parse which sides of it seem to be working well for people and which sides of it are a challenge for people.
0: The the balance in your narrative is so refreshing, so refreshing, and I, I assume that sort of stems from the fact that you are sort of a fact tank and there's no real agenda coming from this data, but, you know, I I wish more of this balanced approach was sort of permeating out there uh, in these little internet snippets that we see floating around the web, but they, they don't often seem as balanced as, as the narrative that, that sort of seems to permeate through your research, but...
2: It's interesting that we see um, two very different kinds of reactions when we put out new reports on things. So we gather up these data and we write them up in in fairly approachable journalistic style uh, writings. And on the one hand there are people who say holy smokes the world is changing. You know, they they see our data and say wow, I didn't know that that many people use social networking sites. Wow, I didn't know that many people use Twitter. Wow, I didn't know that many <laughs> people were getting health information offline so online. So, so there's a way in which people are are surprised at the level of engagement and involvement people have in the internet community. Then a lot of our data, though, push back against the sort of utopian and overly um, enthusiastic views that come out of tech communities. So that in, in the, the reaction in those communities is, is, wow, only that number of people use Twitter. Wow, not everybody has a smartphone. Wow, I didn't know that people felt oppressed by, by getting so many emails and stuff like that. So, so there's a, a public reaction that sort of says this is, this is a revolution that is interesting to watch because I didn't know about it. There's another thing where we're, we're sort of a reality check against people who get overly enthusiastic about the role of technology in people's lives. Plus, the, all they're doing is looking at others who function and live like they do and they think, well, everybody must have a smartphone because all my friends do. That's not the case.
0: The book uh, is again networked, the new social operating system, and um, I have to say, both Mike and I devoured the book in like a day and a half. And and I fancy myself a pretty busy busy person, and I stopped everything and and just tore through this. The the narrative was just so so refreshing. Um, you recently just switching gears, you recently published a report on education, and not to get too deep into this because we're having a a show uh, coming up specifically on education which we'll probably lift a quote from you here but um, it, it seems like being able to operate effectively with a larger more loosely connected social network as you pointed out is is increasingly I guess a basic literacy requirement to succeed and obviously the younger generation are learning this on their own through life experience but how do you think our education system will or probably more accurately must adapt to these shifts outlined in your report?
2: I'm going to break apart my answer into into two domains. Sure. Um, I was actually editing yesterday a report that we're going to put out uh, in September or early October where we've interviewed teachers about how they observe student behavior when it comes to research and and their own practices of gathering up information and preparing lesson plans and things like that. And again, they have this very nuanced and ambiguous feeling about the role of technology in their students' lives. Uh, they, they think that their students have access to more stuff, and when they are engaged, they are much more immersed in, in subjects than they remember students being in the past. But at the same time, the, the, these teachers worry about the cut and paste mentality of students, how deeply reliant they are in search engines to get them what they want and how uncritical they are about what they find when, once they encounter material in search engines and online. So the, the education system, certainly the uh, the middle and high school system in America, those folks are struggling with some of the positive and neg- negative impacts that these have on on the learning environment. And um, and so what you hear from these teachers is we've got to inculcate new literacy skills. We actually have to probably teach a little bit more fluency with technology in our classrooms. we certainly got to help students understand how to master the tools of search and how to evaluate information and things like that. So that's one dimension of the of the work that we've done and, and that how the education system is struggling with these technologies. The other thing that we did recently was talk to... Um, experts in the technology field in the scholarly fields about the impact of these technologies on higher education. And and we talked about it in the context of the future, be you know, what's going to happen by the year 2020. Are colleges and universities mostly going to function the same way that they do now, or are these things going to be um deeply disruptive? And the answer was a little of both, that, that, there are, that the basic business model of universities feels as challenged now as the news business model was challenged in the late 1990s and early 2000s and is now you know being revolutionized. And it feels like the education system is going to go through a similar trajectory and very similar kinds of challenges as they adjust to the realities of how people learn in this new environment. The model of gathering up people, putting them in a physical place called a classroom and putting a professor in front of them and teaching them uh... is is maybe not going to survive for lots of universities and colleges in the future um, and yet other people worry that if you if you go to distance learning a lot and you have a different credentialing system that some of the magic of classrooms where good professors can watch and engage with their students in challenging interesting engaging ways, that gets lost and so there 's again these tensions about does does the business work does the educational outcome work and and so we 're definitely in a in a period of transition, although you know it's it 's accurate to point out that education systems have Um, resisted lots of change over the generations. And it's not entirely clear that they're going to embrace a lot of change, even in the context of these technological revolutions.
0: Just before we kind of dive into another key tenet of your book, um, just for sort of our Canadian listeners, a lot of the the research you do sort of revolves around American statistics. And so say if I'm consuming, um, you know, a report about social media and you know it's this many percentage of people are doing mobile and social and that sort of thing how do you think loosely that would compare to to canada
2: oh i think it's uh, completely overlaps uh, actually my co-author Barry Wellman is a professor of sociology at the university of toronto he in his own data and he in his work with uh, the the tele telecommunications ministries that gather up other kinds of data it's very clear that Canadian and American experiences, uh, at least in adoption and general use of these applications, they're very, very similar, as is the case in the, in the UK. I mean, some European countries are, are, are maybe a year or 18 months or two years behind where America and Canada are, and obviously developing countries are in very different places altogether. But the American and Canadian
1: experiences are, are very, very similar. So speaking of Barry Wellman, um, in, in the book we've been talking about, you mentioned the, uh, you sort of sum it up as the triple revolution of social networks, the internet, and the mobile revolution. So tell us a bit more about those three developments and how they've been so paramount in the increasing influence of the internet.
2: Well, Barry has been saying and researching for, for years preceding the internet, uh, a big social change that was taking place and pretty evident a couple of generations ago, people were moving from central social relations being bound up in very tight networks, the village, the family, small, small communities, and transitioning to much more loose-knit networks that were more Uh, far-flung. There were ways in which those tight networks in people's lives were being replaced by these more diverse, more dispersed networks. Once the Internet came along, this trend that was already unfolding uh, speeded up. And now it's the case, and we, we call it a new social operating system uh, that we de- coined as networked individualism, where networks are really the central organizing structure, social structure of lots of people's lives. They, they, they're bigger than they used to be. People have more friends and more acquaintances than their parents or their grandparents used to the way that they use their networks is different from the way that their parents and grandparents used to and the role of networks as they're making decisions as they're trying to get their needs met as they're trying to engage with the world is much more pronounced now than it was before so that's the first revolution social networks are changing and when once they started showing up in vivid ways in technological space those changes accelerated the second revolution is the internet revolution itself Uh, Right now, we just got data back last week showing that 85% of American adults, and you can bet it's over 80% probably in most of Canada, use the internet. And about two thirds of Americans have broadband at home. And once people transition from the dial up environment to the broadband environment, as they were unfolding through the, uh, the 2000s, the first decade, people became different internet users. They did more stuff online, they spent more time online, their repertory of, uh, of internet activities grew, they watched more video, and most importantly they became content creators. The two-way nature of the internet encouraged people to participate That through the social media tools and other things that were made possible by the internet. So about two-thirds of American adults and three-quarters of American teenagers now are participants in the media culture. They're not just consuming information put out by companies. They are participating and sharing their stories and ranking and rating and reacting to things. And it's a, it's a very different changed dynamic when lots of people now are participating in the media culture rather than a small number of powerful organizations are dominating that culture. So that's the second revolution. First is social networks. second is internet, and the third is mobile connectivity. As Right now, 88% of Americans have cell phones and almost half of them have smartphones. Uh, we saw an interesting tipping point occur at the beginning of this year in our data when now more American adults own smartphones than American adults who own just plain cell phones that do calling and texting once you have that kind of computing power in your pocket once you have access to all those apps the apps the ecosystem is so interestingly a part of this it changes the way that people think about accessing information and accessing their friends it all of a sudden becomes a just-in-time real-time proposition All of these data in these apps are now merged with the real world. So the augmented reality is a very central part now of the experience of mobile connectivity. And of course, it's changed the way that people allocate their attention. They're doing different stuff with their time now than their parents and their grandparents used to. So these three revolutions have all affected the way that people... Get information and share information, and themselves create information, and that's what's produced this this new social operating system we call networked individualism.
1: I think the uh, you know the social network component of that is one of the most interesting things. I was recently uh, a guest at a, a service club meeting, actually Rotary, and it was very interesting just looking at the you know the demographic uh, of the participants there and realizing that you know when that was a you know a, a younger. A group of people that was the way they connected and the way they formed their networks but you don't see the younger generation joining them because they're already creating their own networks through uh, you know through the internet and, th- and through cell phones
2: yeah it's a, it's a much more do-it-yourself world now than it used to be as uh, first of all people have the power and the capacity to do things that their parents and grandparents couldn't I mean they they can access information quickly and not, you know, depend on companies and, and other smarter experts to do that for them. They they are being asked to manage a lot more aspects of their lives, both in the workplace and as they manage their investments, as they manage their health care, and certainly as they manage you know, the other life needs that they have. So, again, sort of there's less... Um, group formal group structure, and certainly less hierarchical um, arrangements in, in the world now than there are networked arrangements, where people sort of move in and out of these networks as they have needs or as they're required to, and then they move on to other stuff. So it's a it's a it's a sort of different dynamic with a lot fewer layers of decision making between you and the boss or you and the head of the organization, and if people you know, encounter a problem or have a need that doesn't get met by an organization that they already belong to or they found online, they do it themselves. You know, they form a community and they solve a problem or they make a decision or they, you know, chat amongst themselves to their heart's content and then they move on. So this, this sort of uh, do-it-yourself um, and almost evanescent qual- quality of networks is now a very distinct part of people's Way of engaging the world, and um, and it's different from a couple of generations ago.
1: Yeah, and I, I don't know about anybody else, but just hearing it, artic- hearing that articulated so clearly, I mean, I think it's something that we recognize and and sort of know that we've experienced, but I can't really put it into words. But when you hear it described like that, it actually, you know, I think you really nod your head in agreement, uh, and most people would feel the same way. Right,
2: we encourage people to talk to their parents and grandparents about you know life <laughs> in the day, absolutely. And, and- just to be a little bit more aware of how they're doing their own problem solving and decision making and this is you know this is so embedded in our lives now that people don't really much think about it yeah. and yet it's really a big different environment from the one that w- existed just a little while ago
0: so in your book and you you kind of touched on it but you you say in the book that Networked individualism is both socially liberating and socially taxing. And how do you think sort of as a society we're reconciling these two opposing forces? Well,
2: it's a struggle. Uh, And what we meant when we wrote that was when you move from the tight-knit world of of, of, of closed-in networks – where everybody knew your business, and everybody was sort of in everybody else's face about stuff, and you moved to this world of looser-knit networks, you got a little bit liberated. You know, you had a little more maneuvering room. You, you didn't necessarily have to have everybody know what was going on in your life, and you could pick and choose who you got to share stuff with and and who you could engage with. So there was social liberation that occurred when as that transition was occurring. At the same time... When you moved away from that tight-knit world, you also lost your built-in safety net. You know, you're, if, you, if you were sick, if you were struggling with your job, if you were um, having a, a stressor of any kind in your life, in that tight-knit world, people would notice and comment and probably come to your rescue if they loved you. Uh, in this newer world, um, you've got to work harder to get your needs met you know, you don't necessarily live uh, nearby your family, and your best friends aren't necessarily right around the corner from you. And so you've got to express your needs a little bit more aggressively. You've got to make sure that you articulate what you want out of the world and reach out to people to get the information and get the analysis and, and get the social support that you need. So there's more work involved, and and people are living with that stress.
1: So 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 being at work is actually one of our probably one of our most prominent social networks so how do you think uh you know businesses are adapting to this tension i mean we spend you know the majority of our time at work typically and and so those tensions that you were talking about how are how are organizations having to deal with this and and shifting their uh, their priorities
2: well there are two dimensions of that which are pretty interesting at least that show up in our data the first dimension is relates to internal structures so organizations tend now to have fewer layers of decision-making and fewer lines on the organization chart as as more people have access to the boss and more people can you know interact with colleagues no matter where they sit in the silos of the organization so net businesses are becoming networks and that's particularly true for companies that are organized around knowledge You know, it's one thing if you're making widgets, you know, then silos and strict assignments and hierarchies make some sense. But if you're in the business of, you know, uh, watching the news and in promoting it, if you're in a law firm, if you're in an architecture firm, if you're um, at, a, at a Britannica firm, the, the structures now are much more networked and much less hierarchical. So, so, so businesses are coping by trying to figure out new ways to capture knowledge, to make sure that they have access to all the things that their employees know, and, and, and that's a challenge the second dimension of this of course is the public facing part of companies as they think about new tools to promote themselves and to engage the world there are lots of companies and organizations that are nonprofits that are that are struggling to figure out what's the right mix of things that we use in social media. Do we have a Twitter account? Do we have a Facebook page? Do we, well, How much do we watch what other people are saying about us? When do we engage with people if they're saying not so nice things about us? And it's a big tension in the corporate world because – Uh, On the one hand, marketing folks kind of like these new tools because they offer new pathways to customers and new ways to engage customers. Um, Those who are in charge of the intellectual property and the proprietary information at a firm are freaked out about this you know what uh, all of our employees can talk about this wait a minute wait a minute we've got to put in rules and regulations and make sure that they don't say the wrong thing on their Boo. facebook page or their twitter account and so you know, there's tension inside companies about how do we exploit these new tools without necessarily compromising the integrity of our business so it, companies are, are in transition uh, around this just the way individuals are in transition and coping with all of this
0: yeah, I think it was Clay Shirky that, that wrote in his book or, or said in a, in a keynote once that it's, it's most difficult to recognize and deal effectively with the revolution when you're actually standing in the middle of it.
2: Yeah, we're, we're right in the middle of this, of this rising sea, and we don't uh, have a, a, a clear map yet about what it all means and how to operate successfully in this new environment.
0: Lee Rainey, we can't thank you enough uh, for being on the show. Uh, tell our listeners how they can connect with you and, more importantly, your work online.
2: Our main website is pewinternet, P-E-W, just like a org, And uh, you can get to my blog uh, off the homepage there. And uh, all our reports are available for free you can scroll them by topic and more importantly to me all of our data sets are available for free so people who are living in your world especially Jeff Mike are are marketers uh, advertisers people who are trying to think about the changing face of markets. they can play with our data as much as they want slice it uh, with different age cohorts different demographic cohorts of other kinds so we want people to, to play steal our data and have fun with it
0: A special thanks to our guest, Lee Rainey. His bio and additional resources can be found in our show notes section at webademic.org.